0: to IEP Radio, a show dedicated to the education of all things indoor environmental quality related. And now here's your host, Michael Schrantz.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to IEP Radio. This is episode 12. Uh, today, we'll be talking again with Dustin Anderson with Advanced Drying on a four-part series. This is part two. Uh, everything pertaining to mold remediation and cleaning, uh, part one, we discussed kind of an overview, like that 30,000-foot perspective of what a mold remediation project may look like, but we knew we needed to dive into some of the details. And so today, part two, we're really going to focus on containments and engineering controls and why they're important. So um, I thought today that would be, uh, we'd show you a few examples and talk to you about a, a few life lessons we've learned. Uh, Dustin, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me again.
1: You bet, man. Um, so kind of getting right into it, um, it, I'm sharing my screen right now for those of you viewing. Um, it, we'll talk more about uh, personal protection equipment, PPE on another day. But I want to just set the narrative here and get a tone for the audience. At this point, if you're experiencing a mold remediation project, you're working with a mold remediation company. And maybe they've come in and they've given you a bid uh, to do the work. Um, we know that there are standards out there for them to follow that can get, give them guidance and uh, direction. Uh, for example, the IICRC S520, the third edition, uh, here in, on the screen right now. Uh, there's the Bioaerosols Assessment and Control, Chapter 15. I mean, this book was written in 1999, but there's good information on there. Um, there's an older AIHA document, Assessment, Remediation, and Post-Remediation Verification of Mold and Buildings. That was 2004. Um, and even the Green Book, um, the AIHA Recognition, Evaluation, and Control of Indoor Mold, um, there there are different references out there that provide um, direction as it pertains to setting up containments, basic engineering controls, and rules of thumb, uh, proper remediation, that sort of thing. Even the EPA, um, where we don't necessarily think they get everything right when it comes to the details of environmental cleaning, even they have um, if you go to epa.gov backslash mold backslash mold course chapter six best if you just go on and watch the visual cast at this point you can see that they have different um, lessons to teach the individuals of what they can expect but for the for those of you who are listening you know it's nice to have somebody like dustin who can kind of give you some of that practical experience so today looking at containment controls we know that they're going into your house and they're going to be setting up containment the question i get a lot from clients is how do they know how big to set the containment? I mean, we're dealing with, um, uh, 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 say, a leak in the kitchen sink, and there's damage visually to the bottom shelf. Um, maybe there's indication that the water may have dripped to either side of the cabinet. We, sometimes we we hear from clients, and we certainly see it ourselves, where a, a remediation company is trying to save money, and they'll try to make the containment as small as possible and only cover or in, uh, in case the affected areas. Now, maybe I should start by saying the reason that we're doing that is because there's damaged materials, there's the presence of microbial growth, and we don't want to spread that throughout the house, right? Um, That may have already occurred um, just by the fact that it was there before you remediated it, but there's the uh, concern that it's going to especially happen when you start disturbing it to remove it, and that's why we set up these containment areas. So, Dustin, I wanted to ask you, you know, certainly on one end, you have containments that are really small, but I don't necessarily know that setting up a real small containment that's just the same size of the area that you can see is damaged is the right decision to make. Have you had situations where that's gone bad?
2: You know, Mike, uh, the hard part is, well, the answer is yes. The the hard part is appropriately sizing the containment to encompass the workspace, make sure the workers have enough, to, uh, enough room to negotiate. But then uh, the other part of this too is you know uh, if you make such a large containment now you're making life hard on yourself because now you got a bigger area to clean uh, decide depending on the size of the containment there could uh, it could require actually more samples uh, uh, based off the size of the containment so uh, you know trying to you know less materials used and uh, trying to keep it as small as you can but yet func- uh, you know functional to be able to do a proper job
1: and so and it's a balance right I mean uh, like you said too small guys don't have enough room to work uh, too big, could be wasteful. Um, I mean, I've, I've seen situations where containments have had, were set up and then had to be enlarged because the work that was done, they upon demolition, they realized that the damage just kept on going.
2: Yeah, exactly. For example, we're just setting this containment up that you have on screen here. Uh, you can see uh, basically the zipper and then uh, Actually, there's a a, a man door, this is in a garage, and there's a man door that opens into this containment. So basically, we're just setting this up to be able to uh, uh, run in there to unlock the door, then the rest of the work would go out that door. The reason why we wanted it here, and you can also see there's some cabinets directly to the left. Had that issue kept going to the left and we would have to stop, basically remove that cabinet and extend the containment out, that can be done. you're 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 kind of going off your previous experiences, and you're and you're you're trying to set it large enough to where you can encompass everything. But every now and then you run into a few surprises, and you know you just got to do what you got to do. And if you have to extend the containment out, um, not a big deal. You just you you extend it out almost like you're building a decon chamber on it, and then uh, you can open it up to the to the new part of the containment and continue on with your work.
1: You actually bring up a, a wonderful point too. So takeaway from that is. Obviously, containments, it's a little bit of a, an educated uh, guess uh, uh, also combined with experience and knowledge of, well, we see the damage here, but we don't know. Maybe it went this stud bay or maybe it went to the end of the cabinet where you can see a little bit of damage and you try to make an educated decision to anticipate that all the work that needs to be done is going to be it, it, within that containment area, the first time, but also looking out on the horizon, like Dustin's saying, where he's staging this containment in the photo here, to where if he had to uh, expand it, it wouldn't be that difficult to just run new plastic and extend the line, if you will, over to encapsulate that. But I don't know if you guys heard this, but he, he had mentioned that on the inside of this containment where you can't see it. So imagine you're inside the containment now, you have the zipper door to get in, you cover it, you zip the uh, zipper back up. So now you're just inside of a containment he mentioned that there was an exterior door. This is in a garage. Um, I was going to bring up uh, decon chambers. In fact, I'll I'll we'll just bring that topic up. Um, a lot of times, um, companies, uh, this picture you have here is actually more of a, a decon chamber for as an asbestos project. It's a three-stage containment, but sometimes companies will put uh, a, 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 a basically a, a a decon chamber. So imagine only one of these three cells right in front of the entry. If we were to go back to uh, the photo that uh, Dustin had provided us, if I can find it, um, let's see right here. Um, normally, imagine if there was this decon chamber in front. So some companies will install this uh, in front, and the reason they do that is because it acts as a buffer. Um, you have it, when you go in and out of a containment, and and the outside of that containment is say in a living space. Uh, there's there's naturally going to be a concern that cross contamination could occur. Um, they put this decon chamber up because it works off of kind of like a flap system where uh, you have plastic that's usually weighted. And because you're under negative air, which we'll talk about in a moment, uh, you're sucking air from the containment. It's going outside. In fact, actually, you can see Dustin and his guys had staged this to where they have this lay flat. So there is a an air filtration device that's inside of this containment area. And it's exhausting. It's not on right now because, like he said, he just set this up in the picture. But it's exhausting to the outside to put this under a negative pressure. And when they have it on, that decon chamber, which would be located directly in front of the zipper, adds a buffer to where a person can enter or exit the containment and have a a chamber to either vacuum themselves off or uh, vacuum off um, double-bagged materials of, like say, moldy contaminated materials in bags, um, it offers a place so that the integrity of the containment uh, is still up. The negative pressure is still being overall maintained and offers that extra line of defense. Now, I say that there are times, and certainly budget and um, logistics are other reasons that this would apply, that you would not have a decon chamber. Say, for example, in this, here, in this example, it's fortuitous. He's got a door that leads exact uh, right out to the outside. Dustin was explaining to me in this picture right here, Dustin, tell me if I'm wrong here. This was in a kitchen area, and to the left, again, if you were inside the containment, there's a door that leads directly to the garage, um, that offered a way for these guys um, to go exactly outside, directly outside, and minimize walking into the living spaces that are not part of the remediation uh, project. Am I correct on that one, Dustin? Yeah, you're absolutely. All right. So then, so then we got this scenario. Let's catch the audience up. Setting up containment. Large enough to get the work done, maybe a little bit larger to to address things that are unanticipated, like maybe that water or mold damage went a little bit farther, a few feet. Not uncommon for remediation companies to set it up a little bit bigger. When we talk about ways to ingress or egress or get in and get out of the containment, a lot of times companies will install a decon chamber at the entry to the to your containment area to act as a buffer to so be so that when they go in and out, there is a, a line of defense, if you will, to minimize cross contamination. And then we segue into negative pressure. Now, negative pressure is this idea of having a machine. If you are, again, watching the video, there's this uh, air filtration device uh, that my pointer here is kind of pointing at. And the machine is on. And and you can see that it's exhausting air and pressurizing this, uh, what's called lay flack. It's kind of like a plastic ductwork that inflates when air is in it. And there's 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 filtered air going through that. Now imagine if that machine was inside, and I guarantee you there's a machine inside this containment because and it's exhausting to the outside. Because look at how the containment looks like it's actually being pulled in. You all see those stress marks right there along the this plastic, uh, that's indicating that air is being sucked from inside the containment and exhausted outside. That's negative air. And the reason that companies will use negative air pressure is because they're trying to create a pressure differential um inside the containment compared to outside so that smaller particles and gases are not going to come outside and contaminate uh the areas outside the containment but in your home so for example this this picture right here you got a kitchen area but right outside that you have the front entry and the living area we don't want things that are being kicked up during remediation to cross-contaminate that's why negative air is important but what i want to talk about with you and with dustin real quick is different um uh, standards, uh, like for example, again picking on the S520, um, they they mention a minimum uh, negative air pressure of, of 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 five pascals negative, but that some people uh, argue or suggest that maybe a little bit uh, more pressure is needed, and so is it, it's a it's a question of how much negative pressure, right? I mean, if you if you if you had a thousand pascal negative pressure, you'd probably have to worry about the plastic being ripped off the walls, right? Um, which, Dustin, you need to remind me to talk about that in a second, about how you secure your containments up. But some companies will um, measure the pressure. And what you're looking at right now is a recorder, a data logger, that uh, some companies, these are a bit expensive, as you can tell uh, on the screen there, but they they use it as a data logger. And basically the idea is that to the remediation company, it's important that the integrity of the containment remains throughout. And if they have you you under negative pressure for... The parts of the project that are most likely to cause cross-contamination, which is usually the remediation of materials and that sort of thing, they're going to want to make sure that that negative air is working. And, and you never know. Um, power can go out in the home or the office. You could have an unruly homeowner who, uh, even though you told them not to unplug the machine, um, they didn't like the noise, so they unplugged it. This will record. Um, those failures in power and let the remediation company know whether or not there's a concern. By the way, if you're a homeowner or somebody that is working with a remediation company, if they have a machine running, do not turn it off unless they give you uh, explicit permission. And it makes sense to do that. Do not touch that. It's there for a reason. It's not there for your enjoyment and it can be very disruptive, um, but it's, it's not just there to waste your time and money. Um, but Dustin, sometimes, um, you know, let's say you're the homeowner, help me out with this. The homeowner doesn't have a $1,600, you know, data recorder that measures pressure differential and they have devices that are less expensive. Any tips you can give them uh, as they're working with a remediation company to ensure that if there is negative air pressure operating, that they can tell it's actually doing its job?
2: Yeah, the the visual cue of just seeing the containment kind of sucking into itself. Yeah. Uh, Is is you know that you that actually that's a a fairly small containment uh, and and there is quite a bit of pressure on it. Actually, I had to to go back up on the top and kind of resecure the containment just because want to make sure it doesn't come down. That'd be the worst thing could happen in the middle of your your job. But uh, you know, if if the pressure is too great, uh, we I know we hit on this before that you can actually put a relief in there to you know have a uh, kind of a makeup air coming into the containment, which. Uh, but that's that's the job of the remedial company. But just looking at the containment, you know, if the containment is sucking into itself, you're under negative pressure. Now, the one thing that if you see the containment kind of like ballooning outward towards the uh, opposite of the area that it's at, that that could mean either one of two things. One, there's air somehow getting into your containment and there's a pressure differential and there, the, there's a negative pressure basically outside your containment, which is causing the, the, the plastic to move outward if you will or for example if there's a register inside the containment and the uh the plastic somehow comes off of that and now you're pressurizing the containment it'll start to balloon out towards you
1: that's fantastic so uh, you, you you're, you're bringing up uh, uh pearls of, of wisdom here two things first we'll talk about the unruly hvac register that gets kicked on or turns on and, and how that can be an issue but you also mentioned you, uh, a job that you were on actually where you had to, to go reinforce and reinstall or resupport the containment barriers. Can you walk the audience through when you're working on a mold remediation company, uh, sorry, a mold remediation job? How do you secure your containments to the walls, the floors? What kind of supporting system are you using?
2: Well, first off, uh, the plastic that we use, uh, we use a six wheel plastic and um, I go through a distributor that provides a uh, kind of a specialized thing for setting up containments because the uh, the plastic itself can, can, contains very little oils. And so therefore your adhesive stick to it a little bit better and, and what have you. But uh, we use two types of tape. I use a, a double-sided sticky tape basically to hang our containments and that's um, between the ceiling and the plastic just to get it on there. Uh, then they get stapled in. Um, and, if, uh, and then and then we can go over it, you can see some red tape there down towards the bottom. Uh, we also go over it and we, we can put some red tape on there just to, to help out. Um, if that's not enough, I've actually gone as far as taking some uh, one by twos or one by one, um, just wood strips, and, and then we'll screw those in uh, and kind of use those as a, a nailer, if you will, to hold up uh, containments. Um, you can kind of see that this one its on a sloped uh, a ceiling there. and so you're you're basically going from like an eight to ten foot slope there. And so uh, there can be you know, as the 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 taller the containment gets, obviously the more downward force pressure on the containment. So the only place that it will typically try to pull off from is the ceiling. and so that's you can support it with some strips.
1: So takeaway for the audience there is that it kind of does depend. but keep in mind, I'm sure some of you listening may have experienced a remediation company where, they were, they were challenged right with maybe the, the containment location and where the barriers will come into contact with the horizontal or vertical surface is on a very nice finished material. The remediation company is faced with many challenges and you get arguments about, oh no, don't put staples in my wall or my ceiling. And, and they're certainly gonna work with you the best they can. Dustin's uh, aggressive approach, or I'd say assertive approach, which I absolutely love, staples, tape, um, nailers. Uh, He's talking about wooden strips or two by, I think like a two by four, uh, any sort of material that you can use that can, you can almost wrap the tape, uh, the plastic in, stick it to the ceiling and screw it in to mechanically hold up that weight of the plastic Um, and the forces. I mean, when you suck it under negative pressure, it's being pulled. So that again, like he was mentioning earlier, day two or day three of the project, when they're Really, right in the thick of the, the 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 remedial efforts, that this thing doesn't come down because that's the worst time for this thing to come down. Um, uh, there's other ways to do it too. There's 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 people can set up. Um, There's things called zip walls or mechanical devices that uh, companies will use to put pressure um, from the bottom up so that they don't have to necessarily uh, nail or screw something in. I've even seen companies go so far as erecting um, self-supportable, schedule fording plastic piping or or even scaffolding. Uh, It really depends on the size of the project and scope and and limitations of access and, and whatnot, but companies have the ability to to install uh, an erect and structurally sound containment. Another thing I wanted to talk about real quick. I know we've been talking a lot about negative pressure. Is when maybe negative pressure isn't the best idea. Uh, to help me with that, I want to take a show you a quick picture here, if I can. So, um, if you're looking at the screen right now, uh, we have a, a picture of a home, um, and there's different levels. And so, let's since we're taking advantage of the um, kitchen uh, scenario where there's a leak. Imagine if this kitchen area right here was put under containment, uh, negative air was being exhausted to the outside. You have to really consider where that makeup air is coming from. I mean, you're sucking air out or exhausting air out that's got to be replaced with other air. Where is it coming from? Um, Take, for example, you have a dirty crawl space underneath here in the photo. Uh, You wouldn't necessarily want to be pulling contaminated air, uh, especially if that crawl space was a problem. Or even potentially from the attic space, if you had like loose ceiling tiles, almost that's more of a commercial application and and contaminating a a containment area with another source, or another area. The takeaway here, it could be a few, but uh, one is that ultimately, this is where critical thinking is important. When you're working with a remediation company, they need to take a look at, okay, what are the surrounding interstitial spaces? Uh, You know, here in Arizona, we don't have a lot of crawl spaces, so we don't really have to worry about things like that. And a lot of our ceilings are, you know, drywalled in or plastered, and we don't have loose um, uh, um, uh, ceiling tiles and that sort of thing to where maybe there's more of a concern. So while negative air is used a majority of the times, the takeaway is to be careful. Uh, There might be a situation where negative air is not the best option or that additional critical barriers may need to be installed to minimize communication from unwanted spaces like a dirty crawl space or, or, or any area of concern that's outside the containment. The other quick scenario is positive air pressure. Say, for example, you're working in a crawl space and you know you're going to be kicking up a lot of dirt and debris and, and with that content potential contaminants. Well, you don't want those contaminants to um, float around and potentially go through pl- pathways that lead into the home, so you may consider using positive pressure uh, in the living spaces to help Uh, minimize that communication between crawl space that maybe you're working in and also the living space. So just food for thought when you're um, working with a remediation company, while negative air uh, controls may be used a majority of the time, always want to be aware about your surroundings and what is the consequence of negative air. Another thing that Dustin was talking about, we were talking earlier about setting up this containment, putting it under negative controls, measurement I would go for is negative five to negative seven pascals. That means nothing to the layman, but to the remediation company, that does mean something, but also to consider other forces that could affect that pressure. And a classic one that Dustin brought up was the air conditioning system ductwork. So for the, those of you that got a crawl space you, or are on the second floor, whether if there's a containment, maybe you have a floor register or registers at that that's at the floor uh, for that's bringing in that cool or warm air for you, depending on the season, depending on where you live, uh, or it's on the ceiling or on the wall, it doesn't really matter where it's at. Uh, companies will put up what's called critical barriers. Um, and again, uh, these things are all mentioned in some, I'm going to pick on the S520. I'm a, I'm a big fan of it overall. Um, they will do that to prevent not just cross-contamination from things being kicked up in the containment into that duct work, but from the air to come in. The problem with that is is that even with the critical barrier? It's not foolproof. There's ways that the air can get around that barrier. Um, so a lot of times, if possible, and this is the, this just shows you the complication of this job, is we'll tr- they'll try to have that air conditioning system turned off, or at least that particular ductwork that um, supplies air into what would be the containment. That they actually turn off that, or otherwise shut it off, or prevent it from doing that, because the worst thing you can have happen. Is have, say, for example, a supplier register blowing enough air uh, in here, in this containment, especially smaller containments, um, where it actually puts a positive pressure inside the containment versus a negative. And now you're worried about things maybe kind of being pushed out to whatever con- degree outside the containment area. Um, so that that is a concern. Um, I'm trying to think, Dustin, uh, it returns um, your air conditioning system. It doesn't matter, but especially if it is a return, you definitely want to make sure your air conditioning system is turned off. Uh, If you have a return air grill or filter frame that happens to unfortunately be located in the work area that would be under containment, it's really critical uh, that you talk with the remediation company and whoever else is part of the project to say, listen, we can't have this thing sucking air from a containment so that these critical barriers are put up in place um, and prevent that sort of cross-contamination concern that you get from it. Did I hit that? Was that pretty fair, Dustin? Uh, yeah. Pretty okay. Fair. All right. So, so we've covered, Try trying to think what we've covered so far we've covered sizing the containment up even before that. Um, I don't know if we mentioned it, but the idea of um, removing contents, I'm just going to hit the hit on that one more time in case it wasn't on this one. Um, when When a remediation company comes out to your house or your office, where they're going to set up containment, a lot of times contents are are naturally in the way. So um, a lot of times, and I know Dustin does this too, is he'll make sure that anything that's um, easy to remove, um, um, plateware, uh, books, uh, you know loose items of uh, food in the pantry, all those items are expected to be out of there. You don't want those items exposed. Um, regardless of the, the actual threat of contamination on them, you don't want them exposed in the containment, so you'll remove them out. Sometimes what we get from clients, however, is they'll get the classic question, in preparation of these containments being set up, you're removing their contents, and they're worried that they're already contaminated. And I hate that word contamination because I don't think we can easily define it, but I think the short answer is, is that it really depends. If you're working with a remediation company, especially with like somebody like Dustin, you, you kind of are looking at, well, if there's a, if there's a box of spaghetti noodles in a pantry by a floor and there's mold that's right behind that, you might just want to consider throwing that pasta away, but on a lot of items, they can usually be wiped down and put in sealed plastic containers and then being dealt with at a later time. And we'll try to talk more about content clean in, in, in part three, uh, of, of this series. But the idea is to remove ultimately these contents from the ca- the, the, containment area in preparation so that the remediation company can do their job, um, any other uh tidbits of knowledge or points that maybe I didn't hit well uh, on Dustin or you, you think we have it covered? I think you're pretty good
2: you know the the contents uh, in, depending uh to the the situation I mean everyone's situation is different so if you're if you have a question about the contents uh, you know definitely speak to the remedial company who's involved uh, if there's been any kind of pre testing done uh to determine where things are at. Uh, and you know, that that might help make a determination on what to do with the content. So, uh, and that that's probably going to be a later episode when Mike deep, you know, when you when you dive into testing a little bit more uh, to make certain determinations regarding that. But uh, you know, working with the remedial company and just having that dialogue is is always a good
1: start. You know, and speaking of testing, and, and in fairness, probably should have I should have brought this up earlier. One of the other thing that may you may run into it's not just about setting up the containment, but a lot of companies. Um, they won't even touch your house physically. That is uh, staple it or do anything if they find out um, your house is uh, of a certain age. Um, say, for example, uh, 1978 uh, or older, we start to worry about lead-based paint. Um, um, it, there's not really a sharp year as much too for uh, asbestos, but uh, a general rule of thumb is uh, 1980. Some people will go even further, 1985, but uh, general rule 1980 or older, a lot of these remediation companies, they're going to want you to do your own sampling uh, third party, or maybe they have a person in their, um, in their company that will do it for you, where they sample the materials that they feel they're going to disturb. So it's not just the remediation of a wall that has mold on it. That wall is of a certain age. They're going to want to know if there's asbestos. That's another contaminant that you maybe didn't think about, but you unfortunately have to deal with now uh, one way or the other if you're going to work with a professional and have it tested. And it's the same argument again for lead-based paint. It's also the same argument where their containment area, like take a look at this photo here, where you know that obviously the plastic eventually comes into contact with the surfacing material, that those areas are all going to be sampled because the remediation company ultimately doesn't want to be responsible or liable for the release or disturbance of another contaminant that couldn't be anticipated. So takeaway points is that communication, as Dustin mentioned, is key up front. What are you doing? How are you setting it up? Um, how are you getting inside and outside of this containment? How are you minimizing uh, cross-contamination concerns if you can't set up a decon chamber, if you don't have a door that, or a window that you can step right out to the outside, if you can't even set up a containment corridor? We have, we've had containments, Dustin's one of them, where uh, because of the nature of the job, the containment wasn't close to a door, and they ran a 10, 15-foot corridor out of plastic that leads directly to a door to minimize cross-contamination. The point is, is if they don't have those options, what are they doing? They may be using sticky mats. They may be using other techniques. What are they doing to ensure that the integrity of the containment is going to do its job and do the job during its entirety as you have, if you have individuals going in and out doing that remedial work. So very important topics. Join us for part three coming soon. We're going to dive into the details of actual remediation and cleaning inside of the containment, how that looks like. Thank you again, Dustin, for your time, and we'll see you guys next time. Thanks, Mike.
0: The content of this show is for informational purposes and represents the sole opinion of the host and its interviewees only. Any reliance on the information provided in this show is done at your own risk. Additional opinions and or research may change our current view of the topics spoken in this show. We do our best to minimize any inaccuracies presented and make legitimate efforts to back all comments with our own field experience, independent literature, or studies that support the topics discussed. This information should not be used to make conclusive decisions regarding your health or exposure. Ultimately, all questions and or concerns regarding your health should be addressed by a qualified physician. Additional exposure concerns and or questions pertaining to the health of your home or building should be addressed by qualified and on-site professionals. Any and all products and services discussed in this show should not be construed as a recommendation, endorsement, or guarantee that their use is appropriate for your situation. In short, we hope this information is of value to you, but please do not act upon it without actual and individual consultation and guidance by professionals who have taken the time and appropriate collection of data to assess your unique situation.